Hello, and welcome to this fireside chat uh, with Brooke Sutherland. Uh, really excited to talk to you today, Brooke. Uh, we're going to give a little bit of an industrial sector update. Uh, obviously, that's your specialty. So um, let's kick things right off. And one of the topics I think is you know relevant to the industrial sector has been obviously the supply chain disruptions. But I kind of want you to set the table for people and tell us a little bit about how some of these companies have, you know, especially on the industrial production side, have been managing over the last year or so. I think it's really evolved. And so, you know, over the summer and kind of early fall, we were talking about, okay, we need to redesign our products. We need to think about, can we line up backup suppliers? Can we build more resiliency into our system? And then I think the problems with the supply chain just accelerated so much that those workarounds were not working. And the commentary from these CEOs got a lot more severe where they just, the components were coming out of sync. They had all these unfinished uh, equipment sitting around that they literally could not ship out the door, no matter what they were willing to pay for semiconductors, for um, even some very basic industrial components that you would not have think, think of as being in short supply, uh, raw materials, whatever it might be. And, and all of those workarounds just really weren't cutting it. And, and you, of course, saw the impact in industrial companies' earnings. You really saw that margin drag kick up, especially in this most recent quarter that we just completed. I think a lot of industrial CEOs have been hoping that the supply chain would start to get better. And we did see some signs of easing kind of around that October time period. Things started to get incrementally better. But I think that incrementally is really the key word there. And it was not the broad-based stabilization that a lot of CEOs were hoping for. And we're, we're still dealing with this. So um, a lot of creativity on the part of these CEOs, but the challengers are just stuff such that, that that's just not going to be enough. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting to have watched over the last year, especially the industrial side. It was kind of like a slow process for them, was it not? It, it almost seemed like the industrial sector was kind of uh, quiet for the early part of the pandemic. And then this past uh, year, it's been ex almost like it's turned back on, right? Yes. I mean, I guess for those of us who cover the industrial sector day in, day in and out, we, we don't think it's been quiet, but um, sure. certainly <laughs> different phases. You know, I think in the early parts of the pandemic in the U.S., at least most manufacturers were considered essential. Um, and so they were able to keep operating, but, you know, most of their time was consumed with just figuring out how that worked logistically. How do you right. get your employees in? How do you make sure they're staying safe? Um, and also, you know, the demand was not great for a lot of these industrial sectors in the early part of the pandemic, sort of outside of HVAC and, and some of these more pandemic related industries. And so it was, uh, you know, sort of a question of, you know, how do we make money for a lot of these companies? And then it, it did switch very quickly where you did see that demand really start to come back and it, it very quickly shifted to becoming a supply problem. Yeah. And, and you just recently, you know, wrote about some of these things that people are doing to kind of change uh, the impact of what we've seen with the supply chain uh, bottlenecks and snarls. And, you know, if you haven't read, if anybody out there hasn't read your newsletter, should, they certainly should subscribe to it uh, on Bloomberg. Um, it's uh, interesting to see that, you know, the supply chain is getting a lot of attention in the industrial sector that didn't really exist before. Can you t talk about some of the things that people are doing that are kind of helping adapt to what we've seen over the last 14, 15 months or so? 
Sure. And, you know, like I said in the beginning, it was some of these more uh, workarounds. So how do we redesign this product so that we can make it without these semiconductors that are in short supply? Or can we get it recertified with slightly different uh, dynamics so that we can get it out there? And then now we're starting to see more structural shifts. Um, And that looks different for different companies. You know, especially if you think about the larger industrials, they have been talking for years about local for local manufacturing. I think there's a legitimate question of how local they really were. If you look at, you know, the impact on some of these companies from the U.S.-China trade war, obviously, if you were really very localized, you wouldn't have seen a drag from the tariffs. Um, but for the most part, you know, this has been their their strategy. And so I think what they're realizing, though, is that their suppliers were maybe not as localized as they were. And that's what created a lot of these headaches is that you maybe were you know, making products in a factory in China that ultimately went to China and consumers, but you were still getting components from somebody who then was getting components from another company in Mexico or Germany or whatever it might be. And so they really needed to drill down deep into those supply chains, understand what that looks like. And I think we're starting to see some of those smaller to mid-sized suppliers think about, um, you know, relocating some of their factories to, to really line up with what these larger industrial companies are asking for. Um, for other companies, you know, I think we're seeing sometimes a vertical integration, which I think is really interesting, where companies have had problems with their suppliers and said, you know what, we can actually do this better ourselves. We're more efficient. We have, you know, the ability to set up a factory footprint to support ourselves. We can invest in automation, whatever that might look like. And they're actually bringing some of this work in-house. Yeah. So kind of kind of delve into that a little bit, because I think, you know, it's a huge hot topic item here, the nearshoring, reshoring aspect of things. And you kind of touched on it a little bit and how it's not like an overnight process. Um, so some of this vertical integration of the supply chain probably has a little bit more relevancy in this near, start, near term. Uh, what, how realistic do you think it is that we're going to see some like mass scale of nearshoring or reshoring? So it's interesting. I uh, talked periodically to the CEO of Rockwell Automation. And I asked him recently, you know, what are you seeing? And he said that he actually felt like reshoring was a big misnomer because it's not like you know, company X has a factory in China and they're saying, I'm going to tear that down or sell the building or whatever it is and move that factory to the U.S. It's more recognizing that, okay, I have all of this demand in the U.S. for whatever the industry might be. I need to put my factory there rather than somewhere else in the world and sort of rethinking that dynamic, um, which is really interesting. And I also think there's a bit of a you know, politically, of course, the politicians would love to see a bunch of U.S. factory jobs. But when people talk about, you know, nearshoring or shoring or whatever you want to call it, I think you have to include all of North America, which, is, of course, also encompasses Mexico, which has some of the wage advantages uh, that the U.S. does not. Uh, and so, you know, I think that that's a part of it as well. But I think we are starting to see signs of companies saying, you know what, I need to have a bigger factory presence in North America. Um, you know, we've seen announcements from Schneider. Uh, there's been a ton of announcements from the semiconductor, from the electric vehicle industry. Um, like I said, some of the sort of lesser known companies, these aren't necessarily like big publicly traded companies, but there's a lot of them that are setting up factory capacity in Mexico. Uh, my Bloomberg colleague, Tom Black, had a great story about this, high profiling some of these companies, but you're starting to see it crop up more and more. Um, and it's starting to feel a, a bit more like a trend. And I think the other thing that's important to note here is you don't need that much capital spending to make a big difference in the U.S. economy, um, where we just really haven't seen it for years. And so, you know, you look at just the semiconductor manufacturing and the EV announcements alone, 
that that's significant enough um, in the scheme of U.S. capex to, to really sort of make a difference in the economy. So talk about some cap, the capital expenditure. I think is really a critical component here because we're. I think back in 2000, the really the boom of 2017-18 was driven by a lot of that capital expenditure because of some of the, the the tax laws and things that went into place. But kind of set those two together. Like, do you see this being similar to that in a way? Uh, do you think that people are spending now that they've kind of like had this year of, you know, evaluation? I do. I, and I think you've seen that in this most recent earnings season where, you know, just about every major industrial company that I follow has increased their capital spending pretty meaningfully. Um, and, you know, some of that is capacity expansions and areas where they're seeing good demand. I mean, I think Dover talks about biopharmaceutical pumps as being an area where demand is hot right now and they can't keep up. And so they, they physically need that extra capacity. Um, and then, you know, other, other investments are sort of around the ESG front or more of the, the growth front. Um, you know, Honeywell obviously is investing a lot in their quantum computing effort, which is a little bit different, but, but they're still spending, which counts and it matters. Um, and I think it's, you know, there's been a number of companies who've talked about that they would have spent more last year if they could get their hands on the supplies and right. the people needed to make these projects. Um, and so, you know, I do feel like it is very circular because to solve some of these supply chain problems that we're talking about, you need more factory capacity. You need to create more supply. Um, obviously, that's not, you know, all of the supply chain issues. Some of them have to do with very COVID-related uh, reasons and labor and things like that. But I do think that's sort of, you know, a, a key part of the problem here. And um, you have a little bit of a chicken and egg situation of, of how do you how do you solve that if you can't add factory capacity because you have supply chain problems. But I do think it's encouraging that, you know, despite everything we've seen with the supply chain, despite what we've seen with inflation, companies are coming out and saying we're ready to spend and we're going to lay out these aggressive plans to step up our capital spending. Um, you know, and it'll be interesting to see if they can actually follow through on that as the year progresses. Yeah. Do you think the inflationary aspect is going to be a concern to kind of damper any of that? I think it's definitely a concern. I will say, you know, there's been some encouraging commentary that inflation is not going away, of course, but it does seem like the pace is maybe easing a little bit. 3M talks about this, um, you know, that they're at least seeing some moderation. Now, whether that holds is anybody's guess. Um, but, you know, I will say these companies have been very successful about getting price increases through. Uh, the pricing has just been off the chart from industrial companies, and they've really had no problem pushing them through. And, you know, these companies don't really take prices down. So if inflation stops accelerating, you should start to see some natural cash up um, as these price increases. You get a little bit more bang for your buck out of them as you get in the second half of the year. But there's obviously a lot of macroeconomic elements involved there that are a little bit outside of those industrial CEOs' control. Yeah, I think it's interesting to see the. Uh... The relationship between the producer prices and the consumer prices, that's always one that fascinates me because it, it seems like there's a little bit of an absorption factor uh, in the throughput and the company side uh, before it gets to the consumer. And I'm just curious, you know, how much of an impact that producer price <laughs> really has on them kind of slowing their spending. Do you think that there's uh, any chance that they would, uh, you know, just spend their way through it? I mean, that's always the concern, right, is that the manufacturers spend away the the recovery. Um, on the other hand, I, I don't really know if you want to be in a position of discouraging spending by the industrial sector. I mean, I think if you look at some of these inflationary problems that we're seeing, a lot of it is arguably the result of 
many, many years of underinvestment um, in key parts of, you know, energy infrastructure or just regular old roads and bridges and whatever it might be. And so I don't know if it's sustainable to have a period where we're not investing. And so, you know, I, I, I know those concerns are valid and they're, they're there for a reason, but I also think it, it's a good thing. It's a healthy thing for everybody that these companies are willing and, and interested in spending. Um, to your point about producer prices and, and consumer prices, one thing that I, I do wonder about a lot is that, you know, between the last time we actually saw inflation, most of the big industrial companies have gotten out of consumer businesses. Um, they now don't really sell to consumers. So whereas, you know, Honeywell used to sell you thermostats, they don't anymore. Um, and, you know, you, and, and GE got out of lighting and appliances and some of these other things. And so it does make me wonder if, you know, the, some of these companies, if their ultimate read on the, the end consumer is a little bit different than it was in the past, just because they're not really in a position of trying to sell anything to you and me. Uh, I haven't bought a jet engine recently, so... <laughs> Um, not not exactly their target audience anymore. So, yeah, but I think we can both agree that that had they build the jet engines so the consumers can fly on the planes or they can ship the goods across the ocean. Uh, however, they do it. So it to me, it always kind of ends with the consumer to an extent. You know, Americans do love to spend their way through <laughs> just about any problem. No, it absolutely does. I just you know, if you're not if you don't have that direct relationship, I wonder if your your degree of understanding shifts a little bit. Um, and you know, it, it's anyone's guess. I mean, you also have to think about a lot of these industrial CEOs were pretty young in their careers the last time we saw a period of inflation. And so I think that's the other question of how do you adapt to this? Um, you know, when it's not really something you've had to operate in before. Yeah, let's uh, let's talk about a little bit about the employment side of things because I know that's been one of the big hampering impacts to the industrial recovery process, if you want to call it a recovery at this point. I'm not really sure what to call it, honestly. Um, but, <laughs> right. So I, I, is the employment side of things getting better? I mean, it's almost like a two-edged sword in my mind, uh, how you really, it's good that the employees have a little bit of leverage here because that leads to wage increases and inflation in that way. So it helps kind of pad the consumer. Uh, but it also is kind of a very inefficient model when you have all this these job openings. And now it almost seems like it requires more people to do the same work because of a lot of the inefficiency. I think that's true. I mean, I think what I keep coming back to is that this is not a new problem for the manufacturing sector, that there was clearly a labor problem before we even got into the pandemic. Um, and I think what's getting exposed is structural issues with attracting workers. I, I think that, you know, the, I, I know the National Association of Manufacturers has done research looking at, you know, what's the appeal for your average junior high kid or high school kid. And, you know, most of those students are not looking to go operate a piece of heavy machinery or work in a factory or whatever it might be. And I think they have sort of a dual problem that there is this perception of manufacturing being dark and dirty and dangerous, but also, uh, it's not, by the way, they, they've, you know, they've really uh, improved the state of these factories. But the, a lot of that does have to do with automation, which is a difficult narrative to pitch to employees of, hey, this is actually a very safe operating environment because there's automation. And, and obviously, your question as a worker is, well, is my job going to be there in 10 years? Um, and so I, I think they have a very difficult sales pitch. Um, and I think, you know, that is going to require some bigger shifts in thinking. Um, and, you know, there there's 
a lot of questions about what that that ultimately looks like. But I think one of the realities is going to be that companies move in the opposite direction of hiring even more robots, really, and investing a lot more in automation. And I mean, to your point about inefficiencies, you know, I, I think that's obviously an area where companies are seeing a lot of opportunities to say, you know what, this is not an insignificant upfront investment in the automation, but the long-term payoff is pretty, looks pretty great right now. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that's hard for me to really digest with the automation aspect of things is how flexible can these companies be when they over, or they, I don't want to say over invest, but they invest heavily in automation of a, to a certain level. Is that is that a some sort of a growing concern in the space, or are they pretty much com- in the areas that they automate? Are they always going to be some sort of need or demand for these this type of labor? I think you know of the companies that operate with pretty uh, automated facilities so far, they still have workers. Um, so I have the opportunity. Uh, I think it was twenty twenty to to do sort of a virtual walkthrough of Snyder's Lexington, Kentucky facility, and this has sort of been held up as a a gold standard in terms of automated factories, but there's still people there. They're still walking around. They're interacting with the machines. And, you know, I think industrial companies would make the argument that these are actually better jobs um, because you're not doing the heavy lifting and and moving stuff around. You're actually doing a lot of uh, working with software, um, especially as more and more of this equipment gets digitized and and has that connected aspect to it. Um, And so it is you know, more of an intellectually stimulating job in that respect, and and certainly uh, better in terms of employee health in some ways. And so they would make that argument, but you know, then there there's not as many of the jobs to go around. And so you know, it is a little bit difficult. But I think that they would say that they're better jobs ultimately. And certainly, you're not getting rid of the people at this point. We're not at that point yet in terms of automation technology where you can completely eliminate the need for humans whatsoever so yeah i 100% agree i used to make the argument myself uh, in my old life uh, about how we've we've come so far with technological advancement and it's made a lot of our jobs easier but i didn't get any less busy and we didn't require less people so i i, I there's exactly i think it just makes your quality of life better i mean if you look at any econ- economist will tell you the only way to improve quality of life is through education and technology um, and that that's what moves the curve. And I think that's interesting to see in the industrial sector as we kind of grow out of this phase. But I, and I, there, I, Oh, sorry, just to make one quick point on the education front. I mean, there are some interesting proposals uh, around that, um, specifically around Pell Grants. And, you know, should those be expanded to include more vocational training? Um, you know, there's also arguably a very large untapped pool among former convicts uh, that, you know, a lot of companies are increasingly thinking about targeting in a, in a more effective way. Um, and so I think, yeah, exactly to your point, I think if you start thinking more creatively about how do we get these workers in and how do we sell them on these jobs, there's a huge opportunity there. Right, exactly. So in terms of like the forward looking for this sector, uh, you know, the supply chain issues don't look like they're going away anytime soon. It looks like it's going to be kind of a long tail to this cycle, at least at this point. Things change rapidly, uh, ironically. Uh, do you think, uh, are these companies preparing for more of the same, or do you think that they have forecast some sort of turn in some direction or another? I think that most of them are expecting things to get materially better in the second half of the year, which I think makes investors nervous. Um, I think <laughs> that we've seen, you know, not every company, but a lot of the guidance that's been put out there is very back-end weighted. Um, we've seen this movie before. It usually doesn't play out in the way that companies think it's going to. Um, so I think some of that nervousness on the part of investors is 
justified. Um, you know, and I, there are, there continues to be incremental progress. We keep hearing some of these anecdotes from companies where they are seeing improvements. Um, you know, Rockwell said resin availability is getting a little bit better. Lennox said it's having an easier time getting raw materials and parts. Um, and you keep hearing these little things of, okay, we made some progress on this front, but then for every comment like that, there's another anecdote from another company that says everything got thrown out of whack again because of Omicron or because, you know, all of a sudden the supplier couldn't get us whatever parts it might be. And so I think it's been a lot of stops and starts, which is obviously a very difficult way to run a business. Um, and so I, I, I just think it, it's a little too early to um, tell where this is all going to go. I think, you know, there are valid reasons to be optimistic that we're at least making progress and moving in the right direction. But I think these challenges are stubborn. Um, and there's a lot of potential roadblocks that still loom. Uh, we don't, we haven't really seen Omicron hit China in a significant way, like it has in the US. We haven't seen the way that they would react to something like that. Um, and whether you would see sort of mass factory shutdowns, mass port shutdowns, and, and what the ramifications of that would be. We haven't seen how the uh, negotiations with the, the West Coast port workers play out, um, and whether or not we might see some uh, you know, disruption there and, and, and shutdowns like we have in the past. And so I think there's a lot of question marks and, and therefore it's uh, also very justified to be skeptical of all this optimism about a second half turnaround. Yeah, Although you're kind you, of, oh, sorry, I was going to say, but you do get the benefit of the, the pricing increases that we talked about. I mean, if you, if regardless, I guess, of what you think is going to happen on the supply chain, if you think that at least, you know, inflation isn't going to get much worse, you should hopefully <laughs> see some catch up on the price increases. But again, it, you know, it's, it's a lot of variables here. And, and I think that's why you're seeing a, a little bit of caution. Yeah, it's kind of like hedging your optimism a little bit. We're, we've all been burned a little bit, haven't we? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Everybody has learned a lot about supply chains and, and uh, seen their timeline shift to the right a little bit here. So, Yeah, it's been a wild ride for sure. Well, thank you so much, Brooke, uh, for coming out. And, uh, you know, I think one of the big takeaways here for me, for sure, is that, you know, there's still a lot of room to go. There's a lot of things changing, if not just in the cycle itself, but also in the material impacts that we're probably going to see this for years to come. Am I right? <laughs> I think, I mean, because it's not an easily solved problem. I mean, yeah. you know, if you think about some of the infrastructure issues at the port, that requires a lot of investment. None of these semiconductor factories are going to be open tomorrow. So, um you know, there's some big issues here that we need to address so we don't have these problems, you know, in perpetuity. So, And that's not necessarily a bad thing because that creates investment cycles and they last a little bit longer than some of these consumption cycles. So, Absolutely. It's all connected. So. Yeah, exactly. Well, great stuff. Thank you again for coming out and talking to us today. And thank you for watching. Uh, hope you're enjoying Global Supply Chain Week. Stay tuned for more content.